happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, he ruled over 120 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high, in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Nehumen, Biztha, Harbona, Pigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcas, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Jen. There are some tricky names in there, and there's a reason why I have someone else do the scripture reading. <laughs> if you've been with us for the last uh, several weeks, you know that we are in a series called Legacy. And uh, the idea behind this series is to, to look at a different character from the Bible each week and to assess what God has done in and through their lives so that we can take some of their life lessons, apply them to our lives, and then hopefully leave a lasting legacy for good. That's why we're calling the series Legacy. Uh, the first week we covered David, and then uh, we looked at Elijah, we looked at Gideon last week, and this week we are looking at the life of Esther. It's an amazing story, an amazing story. Now, Esther lived during the reign of Xerxes, as you heard, Xerxes I, which took place uh, between 486 and 465 B.C. And it was a book that is believed to have been written by Ezra or maybe Mordecai. They're not sure. But what they believe about this particular book is that it was written to be part of the chronicles of the, of the kingdom life of Persia, of King Xerxes. And the reason they believe that is all throughout this book, you'll notice that there is no mention of God whatsoever. God's name is never mentioned. And yet, if you look 
or read between the lines, you see that God's hand is all over this. So you can, you can assume that the writer was a believer and was inferring God's presence all throughout. And as we look into this, I think you're going to see this. Now, we're not sure why Queen Vashti refused Xerxes. You heard in, this, in, the, in the reading today that he had this elaborate banquet that lasted six months. And then the last seven days was especially festive. And he had all of his noblemen. He had guests from all over. And the one thing that he really wanted to do at the end of this banquet was to impress his guests. They're all drunk with wine. Uh, It's been a whole week of exuberance. And he calls upon his wife, Vashti, to come and present herself before all of his guests. And he's waiting, and he's waiting, and she refuses to come. We don't know why she didn't come, but we know that it was a huge embarrassment to Xerxes. Nobody says no to the king. And so he was irate, irate. And so what he does is he turns to his noblemen, his advisors, who, by the way, were all self-seeking, self-entitled nobles, only interested in their, you know, what was good for them. And they were yes men. And so they thought about this situation, and they thought, what would be good for me? They all had wives, and they wanted to send a message to all the women of Persia to not take heed of what Vashti had done, because they certainly didn't want a women's liberation movement going on, right? And so they went to the king and they said, here's what you should do. Send out a decree that will ban Queen Vashti from ever coming into your presence again. Remove her of her post. Remove her of her position. And so the king, being angry at the time, agrees and Queen Vashti is banished. And this leads me to my first life lesson. The first life lesson from this. Choose your friends wisely. Choose your friends wisely. Throughout the story of Esther, we see the king, Xerxes, being manipulated on multiple occasions by his advisors. They're always telling him what they think he wants to hear because he has incredible power, incredible wealth that he can bestow upon them and they want a piece of the action. So instead of speaking the truth in love to the king, they tell him what he wants to hear and frequently it doesn't turn out well for the king. And so what I say to you is think about the friends that you have and make sure that you have friends that are willing to speak the truth in love to you. King Solomon, the wisest king that ever lived, writes this in Proverbs. He says, the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Do you get that? A friend can say hurtful things to you if they love you and they have your best interest in mind. 
but an enemy will simply multiply kisses. They'll just tell you what they think you want to hear. We all need friends that will speak the truth in love and advise us to align our lives with the will of God. That's really what we need. Now, later, after Xerxes' fury had subsided, Scripture tells us that he thought of Vashti. He thought of her. And what that might mean is that he may have realized that he overreacted a bit. He may have felt sad that he had no contact with her any longer. And his attendants tried to cheer him up in this moment by coming to him and suggesting a plan. They said, here's what we would like to suggest. We would like to send out a decree to go through all of the provinces of Persia, and we would like to find the most beautiful virgins from all throughout Persia and bring them back. We'll narrow them down to the 400 most beautiful, and of those 400, you will choose your new wife. Xerxes really liked the idea. And so he signs the decree, and everything goes into motion. Now, Later, we come across a new character by the name of Mordecai. And Mordecai is a Jew who had been hauled off into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And Mordecai has a young cousin, a beautiful young cousin, by the name of Esther. Mordecai had taken responsibility for raising Esther from the time that she was a very young child because her parents had passed away. So Mordecai is her guardian. As it turns out, Esther is chosen to be one of the harem and then is narrowed down, makes it into the final 400, and she's taken to live within the palace as part of the harem for a year where she undergoes beauty treatments, etc. And then she's introduced to the king, along with the other 400. And wouldn't you know it, Esther is chosen above all the other 399. The king is enamored with her, puts a crown on her head, and she becomes the new queen. Isn't it interesting, all the things that had to to come into play for this to happen. It makes you think that maybe God is at work behind the scenes. And that's my next point. God is at work. God is at work. Esther is placed in this royal position for a purpose. She doesn't know what that purpose is yet. But God equipped her with talents and gifts and attributes for a divine purpose. A purpose that he had planned from the very beginning of time. Think of all the things that had to come together for her to arrive in this position. The death of her parents, the advice of her uncle, an unresponsive queen, a hot-headed king, self-interested advisors, her beauty, and her charisma. And all of these things come together, and now she's the queen of Persia. 
we need to consider all of the gifts and the talents that God has bestowed upon us, each of us. Think about the gifts. Maybe people have come to you and said, you know, you're really amazing at this. You're really good at this. You have a knack for this. Think about those things. And then think about the situation that God has you in right now. Why are you there? My guess is that God has a specific plan for your life. And where you are and the gifts that you've been given, the attributes, all play into that. You may not know what it is exactly yet. But there's a plan in play. Now, every day, Mordecai went to the king's gate to see how Esther was doing. He wanted to see if she was getting along well, uh, what was happening in her life. He knew that God was doing something. He didn't know what, but he knew something was happening. And one day, when, when he was at the gate, he overheard a conversation between two of King Xerxes' attendants, a couple of his noblemen, a couple of his advisors. And they were conspiring to kill the king. So he hears this murder plot. And because he has connection with Esther, he calls her and he tells her about the plot. She, in turn, tells Xerxes... He investigates, finds out that it's true, and the two conspirators were hanged. Now, that's an interesting and important fact because what ended up happening in that is it, is it bolstered the trust between the king and Esther. And later we'll find that it gave favor to Mordecai. These are also very important pieces to the puzzle. That it's all coming together within this story. And that brings me to our third life lesson. We are given divine appointments to alter circumstances. We're given divine appointments to alter circumstances. I don't believe in coincidences. I don't believe in coincidences. I believe that the invisible hand of God is always at work in us, wherever we go, and whatever we're doing. And sometimes when we think we're experiencing a coincidence, it's actually something much greater than that. Something that will have eternal consequences. And yet we may not even realize it. In this case, Mordecai is engaging in his normal routine. Every day, he goes to the king's gate. He wants to check on his niece. And he happens, by chance, to hear this conversation that will ultimately change the course of history. It's a divine appointment. Now, the next person that we meet in the story is an evil nobleman by the name of Haman. Haman. Now, in this part of the story, uh, we find out that Haman is highly regarded by the king. So much so that he is elevated to uh, the highest station of all the nobles. He is so celebrated by the king that the king actually passes orders that whenever Haman walks by anyone, they are to kneel down and give him honor. We don't know what he did to achieve this, but it must have been something fairly significant. 
So we have this guy by the name of Haman, and the only person that will not bow down to Haman is a man by the name of Mordecai. We met Mordecai earlier, right? I wonder why. Why wouldn't Mordecai bow down and kneel to Haman, this man, this nobleman, if it's the king's orders? Well, Scripture tells us that Haman was an Agagite. It just says that. And, you know, when you read the passage, you think, okay. And you read on. You don't think about it. You don't know what that means. But I did some research, and I found out that it's actually quite significant. If he was an Agagite, that means that he is a descendant of King Agag, the Amalekite king. Do you remember King Agag? 550 years prior, the Lord told Saul, King Saul, to kill King Agag after Israel won a great victory. And remember what Saul did? He disobeyed and he spared King Agag. Samuel came on to the scene, chastised Saul for his disobedience, and he killed King Agag. Samuel killed him. And Saul's trajectory as king changed from that point on. So we have this history of bad blood between the Amalekites and the Israelites. And while six centuries, almost six centuries have passed, you can bet that both Mordecai and Haman, Haman knew their history. So Mordecai doesn't want to give any respect to an Amalekite. And Haman would really like to see all the Jews wiped out. Okay, there's your history. Haman not only wanted to have Mordecai killed, he was intent on wiping out every single Jewish person in all of Persia, man, woman, and child. He put together a plan. But he knew that he wouldn't be able to enact that plan without the king's blessing. And so he went to the king, and he convinced the king that the Jews were troublemakers, that they were uh, problematic, that they were disobedient, that they didn't uh, adhere to the rules uh, of the land, and that they really should be dealt with. And because the king admired and trusted Haman, he gave him permission. He actually gave his signet ring that allowed him to write a decree doing what he felt was best when it came to the Jews. So guess what he did? He wrote a decree with a plan to have a genocide. On a certain day, he cast lots to decide when the day would be, and it fell um, about a year later, almost a year later. So the day was set, the decree was sent, and everyone in the kingdom was told that on that day, they were to rise up and wipe out any of the Jews. They would not be held responsible for any of the deaths. And to incentivize them, they could keep any of their property or belongings if they did kill someone. Amazing, right? Now, when Mordecai finds out about this decree, Scripture says that he tore his clothes, 
He put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went to the king's gate to try and get Esther's attention. Esther looks out. She has no idea that this decree even went out. She doesn't know why he's there. She sees him out there in sackcloth and ashes, and so she sent a messenger out to find out why he was so troubled. And he sent word back to Esther and told her, you have to go to the king, and you have to do something about this. You have to save our people. It's up to you. And remember, the king doesn't even know that Esther is a Jew at this point, right? She had kept her identity hidden. And Esther responds to Mordecai by saying, listen, I can't just go to the king. I haven't even been summoned by the king in 30 days. And the rule of the law or the law of the land is anyone that goes to the king without being summoned is put to death immediately. Unless the king extends his golden scepter and allows that person to come into his presence. Mordecai writes back. And it's in Esther 4, 13 and 14. And he says this. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. This brings us to the fourth life lesson. Do not miss your calling. Don't miss your calling. As believers, we can never lose our salvation. We can't lose our salvation. Our salvation is sealed, but we can miss our calling. We can miss our calling. Mordecai is reminding Esther that God may have raised her up. This could be the moment, the defining moment of her life. This could be the reason Everything transpired up to this point in her life. And if she doesn't act, he says, God will find another way of delivering his people. But she will perish, and ultimately, she'll miss her calling. She'll miss her calling. Esther thought about it. She thought about what Mordecai said, and she responded to Mordecai by saying this. Gather all the Jews... In Susa, that's the capital city, and have all of them fast and pray for three days straight. Do not allow them to eat anything. Fast and pray for three days. I will do the same, and then I will go to the king. And if I die, I die. Okay? So it's interesting that she doesn't just go to the king. She takes some time to fast and pray. And that leads us to our fifth lesson. Prayer and fasting brings power and hope for deliverance. Prayer and fasting brings power and hope for deliverance. When was the last time that you fasted? For a day. Much less three days. Most of us don't really like fasting very much. I don't like fasting very much. I find it quite irritating. Every time I fast, I forget that I'm fasting, and then I walk to the refrigerator when I get hungry, and as I'm opening the refrigerator door, I remember that I'm fasting. 
and it's like this huge irritant. Close the refrigerator door, and I feel almost as though it's actually hurtful to my spiritual walk, right? Because my attitude is, well, it's frustrating, right? But the idea behind fasting is that it removes something that could be a potential distraction or something that may be taking the place of God in regard to sustenance. And we replace that with the one true form of sustenance. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he becomes our food. Not just food for the body, but food for the soul. Food for the mind. Power and direction come with that. I had a professor uh, by the name of Dallas Willard at Fuller. And he used to tell me that whenever he was under incredible stress. Or had to do something incredibly important. He just wouldn't eat, sometimes for days, because he knew that God's food was much more powerful than anything else that he could do to prepare him and equip him for whatever it was that God had for him. I just thought that was interesting. So Esther fasts for three days. She prays. She has this infusion of God's power and strength confidence. She has all the other Jews fasting and praying for her. They're all in solidarity, crying out to the Lord. And then in Esther 5, 1 and 2, it says, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her, held out his golden scepter in his hand, So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king then asked her, what would you like, Esther? I would be willing to grant you anything up to half of the kingdom. See, the king really loves Esther, thinks incredibly highly of her, trusts her. And he's willing to offer up to half of the kingdom. And she says, what I would like for you to do, king is join me tomorrow for a banquet that I have prepared for you and Haman. The king says, great, we'll be there. When Haman heard the news that he was invited to a banquet with the queen and the king all by himself, he was elated. He figured, I have finally arrived. He's on cloud nine when he leaves the palace. He walks out past the gate to his home, and who does he pass but Mordecai. Again, Mordecai refuses to kneel down to him, and it just kind of deflates his his wonderful day. And all the way home, he's thinking, I have to do something about this guy. I have to take him out. And so he's so bothered by it, he calls all of his friends and his wife together, and in his home, he asks them, what should I do about this Mordecai? And they suggest to him that he he build a gallows 75 feet high. This enormous gallows, so much bigger than it needed to be. Just for, you know, they wanted to add a little emphasis on the scene, right? And they said, then go to the king, ask for permission to have Mordecai hung on that gallows. Haman loves the idea. He's like, yes, this will will be great. I'm positive that the king is going to allow me to do this. 
And no sooner does he make up his mind to do this, the king's attendants show up and escort him to this banquet. Now, during the night, it's actually the next morning now, during the night, the king couldn't sleep. He could not sleep. He had a totally sleepless night. And because he couldn't sleep, he decided, I think I'll take out the chronicles of my reign and start reading. It's like reading an encyclopedia. So he takes out the chronicles and he starts reading all of the the legal actions, the things that have happened in recent days in his kingdom. And what does he read? But the story of how Mordecai is the one who uncovered this plot to kill the king. And as the king is thinking about this, he says, we never honored him. We never did anything to honor his loyalty. And that's important because anytime someone does something good for the king, the king wants to make a public display of that so other people will recognize, hey, you do good by me, you'll be well taken care of. You do bad by me, and you're dead. So, the king is thinking about this, and who should come into the court but Haman. Haman's there for the banquet, and the king says to Haman, Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? (laughs) So Haman thinks this is all about him. So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, a horse that the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head. Obviously he's thought about this a little bit. (laughs) Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most... uh, the king's most noble princes, let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man who delights, that the king delights to honor. The king looks at Haman and says, go at once. Get the robe and the horse and do exactly as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew. Who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything that you have recommended. Talk about eating crow, right? So Haman leaves, he gets the horse, he he gets the robe, he, he gets Mordecai, he parades him through the street, he's making these proclamations, and he's just humiliated. In fact, when it's done, it says that he hanged his head and he went home. He's just mortified. He's in shame. Now, soon after, Haman was summoned for the second day of the banquet. There was was actually two times that they met. And when they arrived, the king asked Esther about her request. Apparently, the timing wasn't right the first day. So she never told the king what she really wanted. She prolonged the banquet to a second day. Haman comes back, and in Esther 7, 3 and 4, she says, If you have found favor with me, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life 
for this is my petition. And spare my people, this is my request, for I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. And if we, merely, if we were merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would have justified disturbing the king. The king hears this, and he says, who is he? Where is the man that dared to do such a thing? Esther said, the adversary is this enemy, this vile enemy, Haman. The king was furious. And then, as the king is thinking about this, one of the attendants reminds the king about this gallows that Haman had erected, and the king orders Haman to be hung immediately on the gallows that he had created for Mordecai. And that brings us to our sixth lesson. Good ultimately triumphs over evil. This is the last, the last uh, note for the day. Now, these are challenging times that we live in, would you not say? All you have to do is turn on the news and you will see all sorts of things that are happening around our world today that are dis- well, they're very concerning, right? And, you, and, and we look at that and we say, what is it that we need to do? What is God calling us to do about this? But we need to remember that God is not distressed by any of this stuff. Because remember, if we've learned anything from this book, it's that he is a divine architect and that he can move things around and orchestrate things behind the scenes even if we're not seeing it in the moment. When we think about the issues such as gun violence or starvation or sexual harassment or racism or other injustices that come to mind in this day and age, What part do you think God is calling you to play? What is he asking you to do? How has he equipped you and positioned you to play a pivotal role in addressing those issues? And are you willing to risk everything the way Esther did? Remember when she went to the king, she said, if I die, I die. She was willing to risk everything. Now, Esther went before the king again after all of this transpired and asked him to overrule the dispatches that Haman had devised. But since the decree had already gone out and no decree can ever be overturned, the king was powerless, in a sense, to stop the genocide from taking place. And so he creatively wrote new decrees that armed and prepared all the Jews for when the attackers might come. And what ended up happening on the day that was supposed to be a genocide where all of the Jews would be wiped off the face of all of Persia, they had the upper hand and they wiped out all of their enemies. More than 75,000 enemies were killed that day. It was a total reversal 
And Mordecai went on to become second in command of the king. He's elevated to the position of great prestige and power, and he rules uh, with incredible foresight. And to this day, the Jews celebrate Purim by giving food and presents to one another along with gifts to the poor. And it's all to celebrate this happenstance. The fact that God had delivered the Jews from what would have been sorrow and turned it into abundant joy. Isn't that interesting? God is inviting you to be part of his redemptive plan. And so we need to think about the gifts, the talents, the resources that we have been given and the station in life that God has put us. The circumstances that are surrounding us and the opportunities that are being presented to us today and ask ourselves, how can I play a part in your redemptive plan? I think some of these life lessons that we touched on today could help us in that. And so I just want to do a quick recap. Choose your friends wisely. Remember that God is always at work. Remember that you are given divine appointments to alter circumstances. Don't miss your calling. Pray and fast because it brings power and deliverance. And remember this, never forget this. Good ultimately triumphs over evil. Good ultimately triumphs over evil. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for your love, for your consistency, for your faithfulness, for your willingness to enter into our world and work behind the scenes, Lord. Even when we look at our life and we say, what a disaster, everything is falling apart. And yet, this story of Esther is a reminder that you are a God who is ultimately in charge. And we can trust you to take what is broken and turn it into something beautiful. In Jesus' name. Amen.